Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. Our theme for the next three podcasts is a recurring one on my show, Wrongful Conviction. Back in 2009, I became a volunteer with the Innocence Project of Florida and also a member of the Board of Directors. And now Innocence Project of Florida is underwriting this podcast. Any book that deals with wrongful conviction is one I always, always read. So our guest today, uh, also he was with us last time, and I, I do encourage you to listen to part one, is the author of a new book called Bard, Why the Innocent Can't Get Out of Prison. So welcome back, Professor of Law and Criminal Justice, Daniel Medwed, who's at Northeastern University. Good to have you with us again today. Thank you for having me again, Harriet. You're very welcome. Uh, also, I want to mention that um, about, let's see, in, in 2001, he helped to um, initiate a, a, uh, an innocence project a little one mm -hmm. at uh, Brooklyn Law School, and it was called Second Look. Um, was it Second Look Project or Clinic? I, I wish it had been Second Look Project, Harriet, because it would have oh. been easier for people to remember, but we actually called it the Second Look Program. I, oh, think, program. Be I okay. think because we wanted to differentiate it from the big right. one across the river. <laughs> and, and all the innocence projects that are across exactly. the country. There's so many. Um, so we finished up talking about um, some of the factors that um, are part of a wrongful conviction. And we went through a few, the power of the prosecutor, Brady violations, um, a focus on expediency and the impact on accuracy. But what we'd like to start with now is um, a term that you use in the book called cross-racial identification. What is that? Sure. So one thing we've deduced from looking at all of these documented DNA exonerations and non-DNA exonerations is that the number one factor, it, the number one reason why cases go south involving an innocent criminal defendant is where there's an eyewitness misidentification, often just a good faith error. Somebody gets it wrong. They think that the person they see in a photo lineup or in a physical lineup is the person from the crime scene, but they get it wrong. We're not as good at recognizing faces as we'd like to think. Our memories change and evolve over time as we're exposed to what are called what's called post-incident information. We see other people on the street who look like our memory of the perpetrator, and then our memory of the perpetrator shifts. Now, cross-racial identification is a, a very specific aspect of this. And it's when people fail to properly identify members of a different race. And the risk of error in this context is much higher than in a intra-racial identification context for a couple of reasons. The first is our long legacy uh, of segregation in this country, which still persists. We're simply not as familiar with the uh, facial and identifying characteristics of people of different races. And it re relates to all different groups. It's not just the provenance of one group, but basically almost every group is bad at identifying members of other groups. The other reason for it, which scholars identify or talk about is something known as um, ethnocentric 
homogeneity, a very fancy uh, a title. But the idea is that within groups, we tend to look for very specific distinguishing characteristics. Maybe Caucasians will look at eye color or hair color to differentiate people. But in other groups, those might not be the factors that are used within the group to identify other people. Maybe it's hair texture or complexion or something else. So we often are unaware of other groups, the, the factors that other groups use to distinguish people. And there is a disconnect when we try to apply our own distinguishing characteristics to a group that typically within the group doesn't use those same characteristics, if that makes sense. So there just are a lot of reasons why we are especially prone to error with cross-racial misidentifications. And a lot of these cases involve that situation. Um, often uh, a person of color being mis misidentified by a Caucasian. So there is a case that you taught, you, you give so many examples in the book of, you know, a particular factor and then a, a particular case, which certainly brings it to light. So um, what about the case of Harry Miller as it relates to this very topic? Absolutely. So, so back in 2000, um, allegedly a, a black man in a convenience store in Salt Lake City, city um, stole uh, money from an elderly woman, stole $50 from an elderly woman in a convenience store in Salt Lake City. And he was just identified at the time as a black man between 18 and 21. Okay. Mm -hmm. Later, three years later, the victim, the elderly woman who, uh, who uh, was the victim of the crime and lost $50 as a part of this robbery, she's walking down the street and she sees a black man. And she claims that he was the man who robbed her that day. The man was a guy named Harry Miller, who was 47 years old and, and in, was in town visiting friends and family. He lived in Louisiana. He wasn't from Utah, but he had come back and forth to Utah because he had connections there. He was also identified by one of the employees of the convenience store as someone who had gone to the store a lot back in the year 2000. So based on that information, essentially, Harry Miller became the chief suspect, a delayed cross-racial identification by the, by the victim, plus essentially a corroborative identification from an employee. Okay, here's the rub. Harry Miller had a pretty good alibi. He had had a stroke in 2000 and was home bedridden in Louisiana at the time of this crime. Mm. He could not have been in Salt Lake City, Utah, but he didn't have an actual alibi witness for that particular day. He had an alibi witness who saw him the day before, a nurse who came to treat him, and he had alibi witnesses for the day after. But for the actual day of the Salt Lake City robbery, there was no one apparently uh, uh, able to verify that he was there. At least th that's how it came about in court. So the prosecutor's theory was Harry Miller must have jumped on a plane from Louisiana, gone to Salt Lake City, robbed this woman of $50, and later oh. that day gone back to Louisiana. Just absurd, right? Yeah. Harry Miller is convicted. And he's sentenced to prison and he languishes in prison until uh, eventually um, uh, years later, he was sentenced to five years to life in prison until mm -hmm. years later, his case was dropped. The case was dropped. 
one of the major reasons why this case became such a tragedy, I think there was a cross-racial misidentification that wasn't adequately understood um, by the authorities at the time or by anyone involved in this case. And there was also a problem with the paltry performance of Harry Miller's defense lawyer because the defense lawyer failed to get some really good potential alibi witnesses from Louisiana who could have potentially at least given a, a better story about his whereabouts it, the day before, the day after, maybe even the day of the crime. So it's a very harrowing tale. A 47-year-old Black man who was in another state at the time of the crime is misidentified three years after a crime when at the time the perpetrator was a Black man allegedly between the ages of 18 to 21. And even though he had had a stroke and was bedridden, he was taken to trial, convicted, sentenced to five years to life. He ultimately was freed and he got a little bit of compensation from the state. But I think it is a very harrowing story. Yeah, tragic. Tragic. As, as always, when someone's life is upended and they are put in prison. Yes. Um, a key factor in overturning uh, a case is often evidence related to the case. And one of my most favorite movies that an awful lot of people haven't heard about is called Conviction. Yes. Uh, which I, I just, I can't figure out why it didn't make more of a splash. It's about the Kenny Waters case where the um, exculpatory evidence was missing. And so he went to prison and once found it upended his case. Um, it, it's a magnificent story and I do recommend the movie. It stars Hilary Swank and um, Sam Rockwell was the, uh, the victim. Um, can you cite a case where the evidence was a key factor in overturning a wrongful conviction? Uh, yes, and I'm so glad you mentioned Conviction, Harriet. Um, that's a great movie. I agree. I highly recommend it. I, uh, two thumbs up for me. And, uh, <laughs> and um, it was right from right here in sort of my backyard. I'm, I'm, I'm in, I teach in Boston, and it was that's in right. Ayer, Massachusetts, Kenny Waters. And that's it's right. really a tragic case. His sister, if I recall, went to law school uh, to, to become a lawyer to help free her brother. It's really an amazing story and, and, and movie. But the case I have in mind, since you asked for another one, is a case involving a man from Virginia named Marvin Anderson. So many years ago, um, there was a horrible, vicious sexual assault in rural Hanover County, Virginia, where a white woman was sexually assaulted um, by a black man. And she, there were very few leads after this happened, but she told the police that the black man the perpetrator had boasted about having a white girlfriend. That was sort of the only clue that he had boasted that he had a white girlfriend. So the police in this rural county, one of the key investigating officers just knew of one black man who happened to be in a relationship with a white woman. A local uh, firefighter without a criminal record and a very good reputation, uh, a churchgoer named Marvin Anderson. So Marvin Anderson became the principal suspect, and the crime victim uh, identified him uh, through a very, very suggestive lineup procedure where there were a number of pictures of black men who basically resembled the initial description, but um, 
if I recall, Marvin Anderson's picture was the only one that was in color. The others were in black and white. And his ID had his employer identification number or something like that. So there were a lot of reasons why it would have uh, stood out. So he is convicted of this gruesome rape and he's sent to, sentenced to dozens and dozens and dozens of years in prison. Meanwhile, the word in the community is that this other man, jo John Otis Lincoln, had perpetrated the crime. And there was a lot of circumstantial evidence pointing to him, including the fact that a part of the whole narrative, the, the, the story of this crime, was that the assailant had approached the victim on a bicycle. And that bicycle was traced back to a particular spot. And John Otis Lincoln was identified as having stolen that bicycle just 30 minutes before this crime. Hmm. And there were, there were all sorts of other reasons why he became a suspect. But Marvin Anderson was unable through quorum nobis or other procedures to, to prevail. Eventually, the Innocence Project again in New York, the work of Peter Neufeld in particular, came to save the day. Peter Neufeld called up a friend, a forensic scientist in Virginia to just say, hey, will you take one last look for the evidence? There wasn't a preservation law, a DNA testing law in Virginia at the time, but will you just take a look to see whether we can find any of the biological evidence from the crime scene? The crime had happened in the 80s, a long time before. Can you find, this was about 2001 or so, can you find any evidence? And the friend looked through the files and lo and behold, even though evidence like this was customarily destroyed in Virginia, according to protocols at the time, the forensic analyst who was handling the case had taped the vial containing um, biological evidence from the crime scene, basically preserved the rape kit, mm -hmm. contrary to state of Virginia protocols at the time possibly because of, we don't know necessarily, but possibly because of fears that, that this day could come, that eventually maybe this should be retested. So it was retested and um, lo and behold, again, it was linked to this other man, John Otis uh, Lincoln as uh, the perpetrator. But like the Kenny Waters story that you, you referenced, Harriet, this goes to the fortuity of how some of these cases um, uh, lead to exoneration. You, you find evidence that, that is in the back of some warehouse and maybe it was misfiled. Or you find evidence like in the Marvin Anderson case that is literally taped to a piece of paper, contrary to protocol. This is all the more reason why we need to have uniform and robust evidence preservation standards in each and every jurisdiction. Oh, that's so true. I remember in the movie, um, uh, mentioned Kenny Waters' sister uh, got a law degree, so she was able to represent him. And she asks for the evidence and they tell her it's gone. It's gone. And, yeah. you know, if she hadn't been dogged about saying, no, it can't be. Well, it certainly is possible that it was gone. Right. Uh, Absolutely. She was told that it was nowhere to be found. Mm -hmm. Um, you wonder he, he'd still be in prison. There's no question about it. And, and sometimes that's all you have in a case. Exactly. And but, I think, go ahead. I'm oh, sorry. sorry. You know, going to that point, because I think it's a really wonderful point. It, it's, it's so 
essential to underscore the randomness of many of these cases. We know about Marvin Anderson. We know about Harry Miller. We know about Jeff Deskovic. We know about various people um, in part because evidence was found, not necessarily in the Harry Miller case, but in a lot of these cases. And it's often found through persistent lawyers and law students and investigators and good clerks who actually, you know, go the extra mile and look for evidence that might not be in the right place. And sometimes it involves the fortuity of finding clerk number two because clerk number one wasn't helpful. That's and that right. is really scary. You, you realize that there is something wrong with our system when justice often relies on happenstance. Yeah, There's another case that comes to mind that I, I just love, and that's Michael Morton in Texas. Yes, in Austin, and, Texas. And, yes. and that, that uh, evidence was also yeah. never turned over, hidden, uh, not able to be found, but then they did. They did? And they were able to uh, find someone in the database who was the perpetrator. So, you know, it happens over and over again. But back to this whole issue of preserving evidence, um, why is there not a federal, or I don't know what you would call it, a, um, a uniform, maybe is a better word, um, ruling or law about preserving evidence state by state? Because every state is very, very different. I, that, I, that would really help. I think that would really help. That would really help. I think part of the reason for it, of course, is political. Um, another part of it is that we do have this belief that criminal justice should be a, a local matter, that mm -hmm. each state should be able to devise the contours of its criminal justice system, that yes, there are federal constitutional principles and other federal principles that will ensure some level of uniformity, but that really criminal justice is something that should deviate from state to state largely based on state predilections and desires. It's one reason why some states have the death penalty and others don't, right? Supreme Court and Congress, they're often somewhat reluctant to weigh in when it comes to criminal justice. You know, occasionally they will, but, but it's one of these issues that's often let, left to the state. So I think that a large part of it's political, a large part of it is sort of institutional practice, that states are laboratories, laboratories for experimentation, and that criminal justice should reflect different state experiments and different state political desires. Um, but that leads to a, a real problem, as you point out, Harriet, which is there are vast discrepancies between different states in how they preserve evidence, how long, what types of cases, um, and so on. Yeah. One good piece of the story, because I always get scared that I tell too many of the bad pieces of the story, <laughs> is that Fortunately, now DNA testing is ubiquitous on the front end of a criminal case. It, you would hope that it's often done right away so that you can exculpate potentially innocent suspects before the case even goes to trial. So a lot of, the, a lot of people have talked about sort of the, the end days of the DNA revolution because the cases where we're seeing people freed through science, at least through DNA technology, are cases, older cases, where somebody was uh, convicted before the evolution of DNA technology in the 1980s, um, and for some reason that evidence hasn't been tested over time. But people who were convicted in the 90s or the aughts or the teens or the 20s, at least in theory, there may have been the chance to test the DNA right away, 
and potentially exonerate an innocent person or exculpate an innocent person before the case goes to trial. But just because we're going to see fewer of these DNA cases doesn't mean the problem's solved. No, it sure doesn't. And and then there's the topic which I covered uh, a few months ago of junk science. We talk oh, about gosh. talk about evidence. That's you know. Well, did you I, talk with Chris Fabricant? Who is I, the, I uh, did indeed. Yes, I did. The guy indeed. on yeah. junk science. What a great book. Great junk book. Science. Yeah. So that that's you know another part of the puzzle, I guess you could say. So now let's turn to the options for someone who's innocent, but sitting in prison, facing a long sentence or execution. Um, what are the options for them uh, in, in terms of, you know, where, where they are in their case? They've already been pronounced guilty and Excellent. sitting in prison. Terrific. So there are both judicial remedies and executive branch remedies. So I'll just break them into those two components. So okay. first, the judicial or courtroom remedies. Um, the Constitution refers to a right to a jury trial the con twice, but the Constitution makes no reference to the right to an appeal. It's sort of an interesting thing. Your right to appeal the, a conviction is not ingrained in the U.S. Constitution. Every state as a matter of legislation, a matter of law, gives you a right to appeal your conviction. And if a state didn't do that, it would probably violate due process. It would probably be a problem. And fortunately, we've never, have to, never had to litigate that because every state gives you a right to appeal your case. But the appeal, it's sometimes called the direct appeal, is very constrained. You are only allowed to appeal issues from your trial that appeared at trial. You can't bring in new evidence. You are limited to what's called the trial transcript, the trial record. What's more, you only can raise issues that typically, generally, that were adequately preserved for review, where there was an objection or some type of discussion of the issue at trial. And even then, if you find an issue from your trial that was adequately preserved, it might not be enough to reverse your conviction because there's something known as the harmless error doctrine, which says it's not enough to show that an error occurred at your trial. You have to show that it was not harmless, that it somehow affected the result. So the direct appeal doesn't work. That leaves a couple post-conviction remedies. One is the famous writ of habeas corpus, famous writ of habeas corpus, um, which means uh, you have the body. That's what habeas corpus means in Latin. And it allows you to go to the government to justify and to force them to justify why they have the body in detention. Why do you have someone behind bars? And you can file habeas corpus before trial, if someone's locked up before trial, or after conviction. The problem with habeas corpus is typically only constitutional or jurisdictional errors are considered by a court in habeas review. A freestanding claim of actual innocence, according to a Supreme Court decision from 30 years ago, is not recognizable, is not cognizable on its own under habeas corpus. Mm -hmm. So that leaves this remedy quorum nobis, which we talked about last week, about, or Latin, sorry, last, uh, the last recording, um, which is uh, quorum nobis, which um, allows you to bring newly discovered evidence to the original uh, trial judge. But for various reasons, that's not a good remedy either. So then you could look to the governor for executive clemency or to the parole board and try to get parole. But these are procedures that don't focus on actual innocence. These are procedures that are all about forgiveness and mercy. 
Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up um, parole, the parole board, because we're closing in on the end of our time together. And that is what happens if you are sitting in front of how many, whatever is, uh, you know, the amount of people who go, who are at the board listening to you and you are innocent and they're looking for remorse and you're not about to uh, feel bad for something you did because you didn't do it. It's a terrible conundrum. It's such a conundrum. Um, I wrote an article many years ago, 15 years ago, called The Innocent Prisoner's Dilemma. And I talk about this in my book, which is if you're an innocent prisoner and you're going to the parole board and you know the parole board concept, it developed in the 19th century. We got it from Europe. And the idea is to get parole, you have to be forgiven by the state and be deemed worthy of mercy, deemed worthy of living in the free world under conditional terms, under particular terms, under supervision, but you somehow deserve this forgiveness, this benefit. So the entire concept of parole is predicated on the idea of you uh, committing a crime, improving yourself during your incarceration, accepting responsibility for what you did, and then expressing remorse and contrition. That might work well for certain guilty people, factually guilty people, sure. who have genuinely really come to terms with what they did, who genuinely feel remorseful and are genuinely contrite. But what about an actually innocent person who can't be forgiven for anything because they didn't do it? And you know that the parole board is going to hold it against you if you fail to accept responsibility, if you try to argue that you're innocent. So in fact, the, the dilemma that I call it is option A for an innocent person is to maintain your innocence, to just stick to your guns, but then you're probably not going to get paroled. Right. And option B is for the innocent person to feign guilt crocodile mm -hmm. tears to maxim <laughs> maximize the, you know about crocodiles in Florida right. or is it alligators? I always forget. <laughs> alligators. Alligators. Oh, right? oh. <laughs> <laughs> you, feign, you feign tears, you feign guilt in order to maximize your chance for release, but it's also dooming your chance for ever being exonerated because now there's a statement of guilt on your record that could That's be used right. by the government. It's a terrible spot that uh, innocent people are in when they go to the board really that's is. right we are actually um out of time i had one other question about you know remedies in, in that we could put in place but um I, there you know i think we've covered a large part of the issue i i would say please read your book my listeners uh, and and uh, it, there's so much to learn and so much to talk about um i i'm so delighted you were with us today you really taught us some things and certainly people can read more on their own. Uh, there's so many books now that are out uh, and in next month, I'm going to be speaking to Dr. Saul Casson, who's going to talk about false confessions. There's, uh, a, there's another, another dupe, another great book, right? Yes. So I do appreciate your being with us today. Next time we will meet a client of yours, Stephen Schulz, who, um, was wrongfully convicted of a crime and we won't say any more than that because I'd like to <laughs> tune in, tune in and listen. So thank you so much, Professor Medwood, for being with us today. And thank you, my listeners, for also being with us today. And please tune in next time to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. And I'm Harriet Handel. Thank you, Harriet. You're welcome.